Hello, uh, my name's Steve, and I'm going to be reading the second reading from 1 Corinthians, chapter 8. That's on page 1055 of the Bibles in the pews. About food offered to idols, we know that we have all the knowledge. Knowledge inflates with pride, but love builds up. If anyone thinks he knows anything, he does not know it yet as he ought to know it. If anyone loves God, he is known by him. About eating food offered to idols then, we know that an idol is nothing in the world and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as there are many gods and many lords. Yet for us, there is one God the Father, all things from him, and we exist for him. And there is one Lord Jesus Christ, all things are through him, and we exist through him. However, not everyone has this knowledge. In fact, some have been so used to idolatry up until now that when they eat food offered to an idol, their conscience being weak is defiled. Food will not make us acceptable to God. We are not inferior if we don't eat, and we're not better if we do eat. But be careful that this right of yours in no way becomes a stumbling block for the weak. For if someone sees you, the one who has this knowledge, Dining in an idol's temple, won't his weak conscience be encouraged to eat food offered to idols? Then the weak person, the brother for whom Christ died, is ruined by your knowledge. Now when you sin like this against the brothers and wound their weak conscience, you are sinning against Christ. Therefore, if food causes my brother to fall, I will never again eat meat, so that I won't cause my brother to fall. This is the word of the Lord. Steve Hall, my name's Gary Key. I'm one of the pastors here at Church by the Bridge. And on occasions, just occasions, um, am I doing something wrong? What's that? work. Ah, let's rewind. (laughs) Just occasionally I'm feeling a bit peckish. I I duck into a shop and I just have a longing for a packet of chips. You probably don't have that feeling, but sometimes I do, just on occasions. So duck to the chip aisle, which is pretty rare for me, grab a packet, and they're so enticing, um, always colourful, shiny, looking like they're full of chips. So you think you're going to be satisfied. As you pay in your head down the street, pop open the packet and literally pop open because the thing's full of air. Thinking it was full of chips, it's full of air. And so what was so enticing that might satisfy my, my hunger isn't satisfying at all. It's th- that stinking bag of chips is actually not full of chips. It's been inflated with air. How disappointing. 
as we come to this passage, what we're hearing is that you can be inflated and inflated with knowledge. And it can be also disappointing. In fact, more than that, Paul says, he says knowledge can be like a dangerous weapon that actually can kill and destroy, damage, wound. He says knowledge can cause you to be proud and so destroy someone else's faith. And so want not to use knowledge as a weapon to destroy someone's faith and Christian walk, but actually where to love. How surprising. Love, which builds up. Doesn't build destruction, it builds up. So that's what we're thinking about tonight as we come to 1 Corinthians 8. We're continuing our series that's entitled, God still, underlined, loves his church. And we put still because as we've come to Corinthians, which is a letter written to a bunch of Christians, what we're discovering is they've got issue after issue after issue. And so it is remarkable that what we hear as well with the letter pulsating with the gospel of Jesus is that God, because of the gospel, still loves his church. And so it could be a letter written to us. God still loves us as his church because although we're in Christ, we know the good news of Jesus. Don't we have issue after issue after issue? And so this is a word to us tonight. So let's go and have a look at 1 Corinthians 8. Please turn it up or flick it open on your device. I love uh, in the past it used to be encouraging for preachers that pages were flipping, but now it's actually encouraging to see that kind of glow in your face, especially if you've got glasses. So at least have some kind of glow or flick the pages. So we're going to think about the issue at hand, because there's always an issue, as I said, the responses, and there's always two responses represented in two groups or factions. But then Paul always gives us the gospel way forward. So what is the issue at hand in this chapter? Well, it's easy. It's front and center, verse 1, about food offered to idols. And he says it again in verse 4 about eating food offered to idols. I am sure you didn't come tonight. You're busting to get here to work out what is the story with food offered to idols, as if somehow that's part of your everyday life. It might have been in the past if you're from another culture. It might even be now if you're from a particular culture. But for most of us, I don't think that's the case. But Paul wants to go deep behind that issue to a deeper issue, which we'll get to in a moment. But what is the issue around is about food, more particularly meat. Uh, in that culture, as people worshipped other gods, they'd go to a temple, offer a sacrifice of an animal, which was obviously meat that was burnt up. You could smell it now as you're standing around the Aussie barbecue. Some would be burnt up, some leftovers packed up, not quite the doggy bad, but given to the priests who could eat it themselves, sell it to, in the market, or it would end up on the table in the fine dining restaurants which were in the temple precinct. So the temple precinct is a bit like the hub of community life where you'd go and worship, you'd go and eat and mingle and hang with friends. You can imagine Kirribilli, you know, the church here is central. If you're here on a Friday night, people are buzzing past going to dinner. 
eating food. That's what was happening. And so the dilemma came because people came out of that lifestyle orientated towards worshipping other gods expressed in uh, eating the food that was sacrificed to those gods and somehow their hearts were bound up in worshipping of those gods as they eat. They'd come out of that. And so the dilemma was whether to keep going to the fine dining restaurants with the meat that was put on the table and eat it or not. That's the issue. And so, of course, with any issue in any church, and if you've been around churches long enough, there's always two polar opposite responses to an issue represented in two factions, sadly. And so what you have here in relation to this issue are two groups with two polar opposite responses as to what you should do when it comes to eating meat sacrificed to idols, whether it's blue, rare, medium or well-cooked. What should you do? Two groups. One, Paul refers to as those who know, the knowers or the know-it-alls. And then those who are weak. So what he says in verse 4. About food offered to idols, then we know that an idol is nothing in the world. And there is no God but one. Feeding if there is so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as there are many gods and many lords... Yet for us, there is one God, the Father. All things are are from him, and we exist for him. And there is one Lord Jesus Christ. All things are through him, and we exist through him. Paul says, hey, you who know, I know as well. This is what we know. And what we know is good and true and right. In fact, what we know is, is one of the most fundamental truths of our faith. There's only one God. We worship one God. And anyone or anything that claims to be God is not God. Because there's only one Lord. And particularly expressed in one Lord Jesus. What a remarkable comment. Probably the earliest record of Jesus being referred to as God himself. And so he's affirming the Noah's in what they know. It's right information. It's true information. We know knowledge is good. Uh, Go to verse 8. He also says food will not make us acceptable to God. We are not inferior if we don't eat. And we are not better if we do eat. Either way you can eat doesn't make you closer to God or further away from God. Unless, of course, you don't eat for a long time and then you die and then you meet God. Then you'll be very close to him. They're the knowers, people who have information. They know things about God to be true. So it's affecting their life. But there's those who are weak. Verse 7, the other group or the other faction. However, not everyone has this knowledge. In fact, Some have been so used to idolatry up until now that when they eat food to an idol, their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Here's the other group. Paul refers to them as the weak, and they don't have that knowledge. But they're guided by their conscience, and the conscience for a Christian is a good thing. It's that inner 
controlling, governing compass, if you like, to help us work out how we properly respond to God, speak, think and act in the right way. But that compass can get out of alignment, can't it? Get a little bit out of whack. But can be realigned. It can go out of alignment as it becomes numbed and gets a bit skewed, but can be realigned. And for these people, their subjective experience means that if they were to eat the meat, it would be the wrong thing to do. It would be sin because they're going against their conscience, which for them is going against what God thinks they should do. And so they say no to eating. Somehow that meat, maybe because God's in the meat somehow, maybe because they still see it as an act of worship, holds some kind of power over them. They can't receive that good thing as a good gift from God because somehow it's too bound up in their heart with something that's wicked or idolatrous. And so their good conscience says, no. Now, for me, I grew up in the Salvation Army, which is a movement that was started as an outreach movement to people who were particularly damaged by alcohol. And so as people came to Christ, a church was formed, as is always the case. And so as a church, they determined that they would call people to abstain from alcohol. I mean, it makes sense, doesn't it? How could you draw people back into something that you've drawn them away from as they've come to Christ? And so for me, growing up in that church where the rule was that you didn't eat alcohol, my conscience was shaped by that. So that if I saw other Christians drinking alcohol, I actually thought they were doing the wrong thing. And in fact, certainly if I drank alcohol, I would have definitely been sinning because I believed that was the wrong thing to do as a Christian. I would have been going against my conscience. Now, as I said, conscience can be changed, and thankfully people came around me and gently shared what God's word said about alcohol. That is a good gift to be received and enjoyed. But that's the two factions, the knowers or the know-it-alls and the weak with their conscience. What do they do when they're invited to a dinner party? Do they go and eat or not go and not eat? What about if they're at each other's house? What's the way forward? What about in the life of church where you end up eating together? That is an expression of a loving community. You eat together. What's the way forward? Oh, well, you guys can just eat tofu and be vegan. Miss out on the good, lovely rump. What do you do? Well, as I said, this letter from Paul is always pulsating with the gospel. What is the gospel? It's the good news of the Bible that says we can have relationship with God because of what he's done for us in Jesus. Relationship before rules. And so what's the gospel way forward? Well, it's the gospel way forward. But let me talk about two potholes you can fall into before you take the gospel road. It's the pothole of license. Now, if you're a cyclist, I am. Potholes can really make you come a cropper, put you in hospital, even kill you. So they're dangerous things, even though they might be small. 
So the first pothole that you can fall into is license. That is, exercise your freedom no matter what. Added, it's, it's extreme. You could think of the person who's just bought the new sports car, absolutely takes it on the highway, breaks the speed limit, exercising his freedom in his fast car and saying, well, I'm saved by grace. That's license at its most extreme form, which most of them, I'm sure we wouldn't do. So their way, the, the license way forward is, oh, look, just get over it, you weak Christians. Move on. Just knock yourself out and eat the meat. The other pothole, though, is the pothole of legalism, which I suspect as I was growing up as a Christian, I would have always been inclined to. And that is, no, we need to make a rule. No eating meat no matter what. That's the way forward always. Now, of course, there are right and wrongs in the Christian life. There are the Ten Commandments that are affirmed. But there are areas where there isn't rules. There's things to be received as God's good gifts. And so you can fall in those two potholes as you're endeavouring to make the gospel way. Paul turns to the knowers, the ones with information, and he puts the burden on them in terms of making a response. Look back to verse 1. About food offered to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge inflates with pride, but love builds up. If anyone thinks he knows anything, he does not yet know it as he ought to know it. But if anyone loves God, he's known by God. Again, he's affirming knowledge. You know, knowledge is good. Knowledge is important. It's crucial. It's essential. But if you really know, you know that you don't yet fully know. That's what he's saying about knowledge. And if you know and you don't yet know that you don't yet fully know, you become inflated. And when you become like that, you become destructive. He said, but, but love is the better way. In fact, verse 3, he says, relationship is where it's at. How you see yourself in light of who God is and how he sees you is what the most important thing is. And relationship isn't about what you know whether you can flick to the Bible preference the quickest. You can rattle off lots of memory verses. You can know lots of theological words or theological gurus. No, it's whether you know and love God. Your knowledge is expressed in love of God. Then you know you'll be known by God. Of course, growing up... uh, up north, it meant I, I went for the Manly Seagulls. There, I, I kind of confessed it. Um, and I grew up next to the man who was the captain of the team when I was growing up supporting them, Alan Thompson. He's known for the, for the big, long pass. And he was captain of Australia at the time as well. So that meant I was known by him. And so I went to training sessions often where I got to know some of the other players. But there's a difference between being known by someone and knowing them, isn't there? And so I might have said I knew Phil Blake and Noel Cleal and those guys, but if I was walking down the street, I don't reckon they'd say they knew me. 
to say, oh, hi, LT. There's a big difference. I mean, I could say I was known by Alan Thompson because I was in his house. I played football with his brother, so his sons in his backyard. I was known by him. We had relationship. I wouldn't say I loved him, but we certainly were friends. How, how much more so is it great to be known by God? If your knowledge has turned into love for God, Paul says, verse 3, you're known by him. This has been front and centre, prior and primary, right through the letter of 1 Corinthians. It's expressed in all sorts of different ways. You belong to God. You've been bought by him. Now Paul says, you're known by God, the creator of the universe, the one God. All things are for him. We exist for him. There's one Lord Jesus Christ. All things are through him, including you exist through him. That God knows you. And that should shape everything about you and how you behave towards him and, of course, towards others. Knowledge, it's one of those dangerous things. And because of where we are in society and culture and who we are in Australia, we are in a dangerous position. There's a story of Muhammad Ali, who's known generally as a very humble man, but there's one story about him. He was flying on a plane and some turbulence kicked in and so the pilot put on the fasten seatbelt sign. And so the flight attendants then went down the aisles to make sure people were putting their seatbelts on. They got to Muhammad Ali and he didn't have his seatbelt on. And so one person said, please, Mr. Ali, would you mind putting your seatbelt on? He responded by saying, Superman don't need no seatbelt. The, the flight attendant quickly responded by saying, yes, yeah, Superman don't need no airplane either. So put your seatbelt on. And see, it's, it's what... Uh, John Dixon in his book, Humilitas, refers to as competency extrapolation. So Muhammad Ali might have been very good in the boxing ring, dominate, strong, power, competent in there. But when it comes to a plane in the air where there's turbulence, you need more than just competency in the boxing ring. You need more than the pilot, the crew and the seatbelt. You need the plane. See, knowledge is dangerous because we let it what we have knowledge in one area extrapolate into lots of other areas so that we know it all and we're inflated. And so see what Paul says in verses 9 to 12. And the obvious implication is the most dangerous thing to someone's faith is not outside the church but inside the church. The most dangerous thing to people's faith, your faith, is not something outside the church but inside the church and that's you and I. Look what he says in verses 9 to 12. But be careful that this right of yours, that is the freedom to eat, in no way becomes a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone sees you, the one who has this knowledge, dining in an idol's temple, won't his weak conscience be encouraged to eat food offered to idols? Then the weak person, the brother for whom Christ died, is ruined by your knowledge. Now when you sin like this against the brothers and wound their weak conscience, you are sinning against Christ. Wow. We who have knowledge can be the most dangerous people to each other's faith. It's devastating, isn't it? 
You know, the prodigal son returns and says to his father, I've sinned against you and you alone. He's got it clearly right. Yeah, we sin against each other, but when we're doing that, we're ruining the faith of others who Christ gave his life for. You're sinning directly against Jesus, the one Lord who gave his life for you and them. That, that is a powerful, weighty thing, isn't it? By how you use your knowledge of freedom. And growing up, I remember seeing news uh, reports on the TV of, of people who were protesting for land rights. And the chant, they had posters and they had a chant. What do we want? Land rights. When do we want them now? What do we want? Land rights. When do we want them now? It's like, yes, as humanity, that's our cry, isn't it? We've got rights, we demand them, and we live out those rights. But as Christians who are known by God, who's done everything possible so that we could love him through Christ, we lay down our rights. That's what Paul's saying. We might have knowledge. We might have the freedom to express that. But that'll be governed by the love God's shown for us, and so we have for him and then the people he loves, the people Christ died for. You know, there's something that matters more than being right. That's what Paul's saying. Just because we can do something doesn't mean we should. A can doesn't mean a should. It means a maybe. What are our idol meat issues? What are the issues for us? I think it's pretty hard for us to work these out, actually, because I think most of us in the room, including me, don't think we're weak. Who thinks they're weak? <laughs> no one thinks that. We all think we're strong. That's a dangerous position, isn't it? Because it's not true. Just because we've got information, we've got knowledge, we've got education, we've got whatever... Because we're all weak at some point. We've all come out of something and struggling with something. So that's one why I think it's hard to work out what our idol meat issues because we're all so sinfully seeing impaired about ourselves and think we're strong. The other thing is, I think it's just hard to spot our idols these days compared to when you went to the temple. It's pretty obvious. It's a temple. You brought a sacrifice, there's a shrine, it got burnt up, you could smell it. You know, hey, look, you can eat the meat afterwards. Obvious idol. Hard to wheel a shrine in or a statue into church. Our idols are those things we worship in our heart, aren't they? The things our heart and lives latch onto and we give ourselves to. And most of it seems acceptable. That's the problem. That's where we're trapped. So we think we're strong. So let's think of uh, some possible examples. Hopefully I'll I'll avoid the potholes of license and legalism. But you could imagine someone coming out of a life where their idol was success, stuff and status, which was all achieved through pursuing money, 
So the idols were success, stuff, and status, but the way they got that was by getting money. And so what did their life look like? Long hours at work, obviously, pursuing career, pursuing the promotion, sacrificing family, sacrificing friends, a life given over to that pursuit celebration of all the stuff all the time because that's where the only enjoyment came from. Imagine that person being saved and converted out of that, leaving that idol behind. Of course, they've still got to work. They still accumulate things, but their life looks different, doesn't it? It's, it's reorientated. And, and imagine if they became part of the church body started to try as a young Christian to live the Christian life and then saw other workers doing which th- those things which they thought they were coming out of and were motivated by living for an idol. You'd have to think that might draw them back in their weak conscience into living for that idol again. Yes, even though those people who are living that way may not have that intention and that idol, it still may well be unhelpful. It's tricky, isn't it? Someone also pursuing their career, their promotion, the celebration of good things could be unhelpful. Don't hear me making rules here. I'm not making rules. I'm trying to avoid that as Paul didn't make a rule. What he's saying is if you love God, you're known by him, you'll see yourselves and then you'll acutely be aware of other brothers and that your decisions, your actions impact them in their faith. That's what Paul wants us to see. You can't avoid that. I mean, the soft, the soft target for this always is alcohol. And, and I'm still you know, struggling with my weak conscience in this, but you have to, if you look around society, I mean, I've experienced it up front and, and personal. My grandfather drank alcoholics off the street and had it in his home. My dad had a, a drug-addicted person in my home when I was growing up. If you've seen the damage that alcohol does to people's lives, it's ruining, and it's our culture in Australia. Surely plenty of people are being converted out of that, and we need to be sensitive to how we use the good gift God's given us in terms of others, which is not abstaining, is it? Maybe. But it's certainly knowing this, knowing other people's stories. Where did they get converted from? Is this their issue? At least asking the question, is this going to be helpful or unhelpful? At least asking the question before we act. But it means we need to profoundly, if we profoundly love God and known by him, we need to profoundly love each other. Know each other deeply. Deeply. We often ask, what are we free to do? As Christians, what are we free to do? Maybe the better question is, what am I free to give up for the good of others in the name of Jesus? What am I free to give up? I mean, Jesus, his own words in calling us to follow him, he says, you know, if you want to follow me, you have to deny yourself, take up your cross daily. Take up your cross daily. 
Whoever wants to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for me will find it. At the heart of the response to Jesus is sacrifice, is giving up, is denying yourself daily. Could you say you've given up your right to something in conscious recognition that you love God and you want to be loving to others because of a particular issue? Have you given something up? Could you name it? See what Paul says, verse 13. Therefore, if food causes my brother to fall, I will never again eat meat so that I won't cause my brother to fall. Never again will I claim that right because way more important for me and my freedom and exercising in this way is the faith of a brother or sister in Christ. Jesus. Philippians 2. He gave it up. Came from heaven, glory, down to this cesspit, took on flesh. More than that, died. Not a death he deserved, we deserved. He sacrificed his life for us, a demonstration of God's love for us. So we can be known by God. May our lives be shaped by the demonstration of this giving up of rights by Jesus. And more than that, may our lives be a demonstration of giving up rights for the sake of others. Are you someone who's here tonight and doesn't love God and is not known by him? Don't leave without knowing what that means. I'll be down the front here after church. I'd love to talk to you about what it means to, to love God and be known by him in Jesus. But do you love God and known by him so that you are reorientating your life around him and the people he loves? We're going to have a time of open prayer now.